Hello, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. In this episode, J.D. Gunnell talks about the dangers of planting aspens and about watering lawns. Later on, Michael Karen, USU Extension horticulturist at Thanksgiving Point, talks about why it's such a great time to plant trees and how to help them survive. horticulture, there's oftentimes not a single correct answer as to why plants are struggling. Some examples include a tree may have yellow leaves, but those yellow leaves are from overwatering or underwatering, or they could have an insect pest, or it could be a combination of two of the three things. What I've got here is a call about aspens rooting upon the surface of the soil and why a lawn is struggling. And I gave my answers, which included, I thought maybe that the soil was nutrient deficient and that it maybe was compacted and that they needed to take a look at testing the soil for those nutrient deficiencies and then also uh, maybe aerate in the spring and possibly in the fall. So I've had J.D. Gunnell, a frequent contributor, chime in on what he thought, and he agreed with me on the aspens but had a different take on the lawn, and it's interesting. I'm not saying either of us are right or wrong, and it's probably a combination of both things. I'm not going to play the call due to privacy issues, but with my introduction, that should be enough to go on. Well, I'm kind of smiling because I can't tell you how many calls I take on aspen trees and lawns. You know, the caller is exactly right. It's just their general nature to sucker to send out all those shoots that's how they reproduce you know one of the largest organisms recorded is in central utah down by fish lake area and it's a clonal group of quaking aspen called pando and so you know native trees such as quaking aspen sometimes just need to be left in nature you know they, they grow typically above 6500 to 7000 feet in elevation and like I said, they just, they sucker. That's what they do. You go to any patch of quakies and they're all intertwined and interrelated. And then we bring them, we bring these starts down to the valley floors, oftentimes heavy clay soils in the heat of the valley. And we expect them to stay as a one or two tree specimen. And it works usually for about 10 years or so until they maturity and they start reproducing via suckers and then it just drives homeowners crazy because they sucker in your lawn and they steal nutrients and water from your lawn and it's just not a really good ornamental tree for landscape situations now they're one of my favorite trees in nature i love listening to the rustling they have a really nice yellow fall color really great trees in nature but Let's leave them there. Don't bring them into the landscape setting and and then five years later have issues 10 years later because you're trying to keep them contained against their nature. So besides suckering, can you comment on their longevity or their lifespan in our yards? 
you know, you mentioned that I know a little bit about trees and, and there's a lot more that I don't know. But the one thing I do know about Quakies is they have dozens, if not 30, 40 pests that will get into them, including boars. They're susceptible to different diseases. And so you go into nature in any, any stand of Quakies and probably 20 to 50% of those Quakies are going to be dead or dying. And so I usually tell people if the tree grows fast, it's probably going to die fast as well. So a lot of susceptible prob- susceptibility problems to insects and disease. So if people want a tree that's something like aspen to grow in their yard that's longer lived, doesn't sucker, what recommendations do you make? Some of the water birches or river birches have kind of that nice white bark. Um, and, the, and they still have that yellow fall color. You can get multi-stem versions. There's one called Heritage, another one called Duraheat. They're a little bit more uh, adaptable to to some of our soils. They do still require quite a bit of water, but they don't have su- as many issues as the quaking aspen does. We did that phone call out of order, and the first part of the question was on his lawn that he was watering 15 minutes a day and it wasn't responding. What commentary or what thoughts do you have on that? Well, depending on the type of sprinkler head he has, 15 minutes isn't a lot. I've got pop-ups in part of my lawn, and I have to run them for at least a half hour each time I irrigate to get, you know, a third of an inch of of water and you know if you look at some of the extension publications on lawn water use in the hottest part of summer you're you're trying to water anywhere between inch and a half to two inches per week it's rare this color is very rare because normally people are irrigating way too much but it sounds like this guy's just not putting enough down at it at any one given time when he called in last saturday i had thought maybe nutrient deficiencies in the soil or a compacted soil and well, and like I said, it, it goes contrary to how we as horticulturists are trained with the public and helping them as most of the time people are overwatering. It's kind of a rarity when someone is not watering. Yeah, and so on the 15 minutes a day, not knowing the soil type, what do you recommend usually people on an irrigation schedule? Well, if it's, again, if it's a pop-up sprinkler, then I would probably say 30 minutes to 40 minutes every three days. But if it's a, a rainbird type, the the larger sprays, they can be even longer. I have to put mine on for 45 minutes to an hour just to get adequate water coverage. So thank you again. We greatly appreciate your time. You're welcome. And so there you have it. I again want to thank J.D. Gunnell for taking time to comment on this. And you can see that horticulturists sometimes have different perspectives, which I think is good because I actually think this guy probably needs to use a combination of both of our answers to get his lawn healthy, but thank you for listening and have a great day. Fall is a great time to plant trees because we, we're going into a season where we have cooler temperatures. 
and falls a time when a lot of woody plants will have root, some root development so uh, as a natural process so planting them in the fall they're less stressed for for water because the temperatures the daytime temperatures are cooler uh, the soil moisture levels tend to be a little bit better especially for irrigating and uh, they naturally will have some root development so that all those factors can combine together tend to tend to make it a pretty good environment for planting trees the hard part about planting trees in the fall is that a lot of nurseries are closing out their materials they don't have as good of a selection they don't want to overwinter all their materials and so that's really more of a challenge but uh, i i would prefer to plant everything in the fall if, if i could get it all in the fall and so now now can be a time to get a good deal uh, on a lot of material if you're willing to and able to be flexible with the availability so it may not be the tree or the shrub that you wanted but keep in mind that that even though sometimes you can get plants cheaper i don't think you should compromise on the integrity of what you're going to put in like if you've got a certain tree plant say an oak tree or a beech tree or something and you want something sturdy and large and shaded uh, don't be in a hurry to replace that with an inferior tree like a black locust or something that is not nearly as desirable, not as long-lived, uh, prone to more problems, uh, just simply because you can get it cheaper. Because the, the, the longevity of woody plants is that their value increases with age, and so if you get the right plant in the ground whenever you can, it's gonna be better off for you in the long run than, than compromising on something that really doesn't fit the bill. So I think as far as uh, availability, typically what we see this time of year, and I, I haven't been out to look at nursery stock um, in the last few weeks, but um, typically we see um, a lot of oak trees, uh, a lot of zelkovas, uh, some of the trees that people are a little bit more reluctant to plant um, just simply because they're more slower growing. A lot of people want shade fast and so the trees that tend to sell the fastest are the are the ones that grow fast so that's the poplars some of the maples the willows uh, those kinds some of the ash trees and so what what's often left then are the beeches the oaks the alders uh some of the conifers and conifers tend to cost a little bit more anyway i i've seen a lot of at the end of the season i've seen a lot of uh, Japanese lil lilac trees as well. Um, there's there's some ash usually left over, but a lot of times that gets snapped up. And we don't actually encourage people to plant ash tree in our area anymore uh, because we are our area is is being threatened by the uh, emerald ash borer, which is really close to being in Utah, which will devastate the ash trees and landscapes and in our forested areas as well if it gets here. So we're, we're kind of trying to back off on ash trees and look at a lot of other things. One, one of the trees that gets woefully overlooked, in, in my opinion, are, are the, is, is all the group of hybrid elm trees. And elm trees get a bad reputation in, in Utah because of one tree, the Siberian elm um, or uh, Omus pumula. And it's weedy. It's prone to a lot of diseases. It's prone to a lot of um, wood breakage. 
it grows really fast. It produces copious amounts of seeds and it's prone to a lot of pests and it just gives elms a bad name. So whenever I'm talking to people and I say, well, I think you need to, to plant this elm or that elm, they, they kind of shudder and back away because they, they have had experience with, with one bad player. But um, all the elms that are available in commerce are um, hybrids from European and Asian species of elms. Sometimes there's American elm species in them, but they're, they're typically very well behaved and they're, they're back in the industry after a long hiatus from when um, Dutch elm disease devastated the American elm uh, back, back nearly about 80 years ago or so. So they're, they're great trees and they, they grow. Uh, elm is funny. The, the, most of these elms tend to, so for, for exa an example of a really popular one is, is frontier elm. So front, frontier elm has been around now for quite a few years as kind of one of the first uh, in a group that's been introduced to the market to help bring elms back into, into the industry. A good performer grows fairly quickly, but the wood is not, is not as weak as in like the Siberian elm. And another great elm that is not uh, in that American elm vein is um, lacebark elm which ha has uh, always been a good performer in our landscapes and can handle some dry, um, hot areas as well. In fact, we see this a lot in Southern Utah. So that oftentimes, like I said, these, these are trees that people leave behind at the nursery. But so another one that gets overlooked a lot is the Osage orange. That's a plant that's native to the Midwest, the Southern Midwest. Uh, Oklahoma area, and uh, there there are some cultivars out there that are selected to be fruitless and not have thorns, and so uh, that that's another good option for some of those tougher to grow areas. As you brought up, like hawthorns and some of these other uh, plants with, with small fruits on them, these are especially attractive to birds. So if you like having birds in your yard, if if you like um, kind of that feel that they bring and you're interested in and seeing a lot of different species then plants like hawthorns and some of these small fruited crab apples and things can be a great way to enhance winter interest by just bringing wildlife into your yard. Uh, I know I have a hawthorn. I have a thornless cockspur hawthorn in my yard and it's our favorite tree. A uh, very small tree but it gets loaded with with those bright red fruits and it gives us winter interest almost the whole year almost the whole winter long. And so we love it. We're a fan of we're a fan of those hawthorns, and they're they're tough as nails. Uh, we do get a lot of fruit drop because the birds don't get it all, but it disintegrates usually by by late spring. It's gone. Uh, I have had in in my yard a few seedlings come up from that, and uh, they're they're easy to remove. They're not they're not uh, difficult at all to take care of. And in fact, um, sometimes it's fun to move those into a new spot and uh, try them there. Next up, Mike is going to talk about how to transplant trees into the yard to maximize their survival. One of the most important things about um, planting woody plants particularly is making sure that the hole is big enough. And by, by that, I mean that the hole is a lot wider than, than the pot is or than the root ball is. And so there's, there's kind of, that, that's kind of the first thing in, in, a, in, in about three, kind of three main commandments that I, 
that I like to, to talk to people about. And that's make a wide, shallow hole. So the hole is, shouldn't be any deeper than the root ball is tall. So it doesn't settle in there and create kind of a, a low spot where water will collect. And the reason that we go with a much wider hole is, is so that the soil becomes loosened and less compacted and the roots can then penetrate into that softer soil, which is still the native soil. Uh, and then they can um, kind of get off to a good start and then get established a little bit before they have to work into the harder soil. So it's really just a compaction relief idea that the, the hole is wide and shallow. And uh, also don't put anything back to the planting hole uh, except for the soil that came out of it. So don't amend it with organic matter or anything uh, like that or sand or anything. Put the dirt back in that, that came out of it. If you have big rocks, obviously you can leave those out. The reason for that is that we, we, we can't, the, the roots of these woody plants are going to spread over a very large area. They'll, most trees and, sh and shrubs will, will take up a rooting area about three to seven times the diameter of the crown. So given that, that it, it doesn't make sense that amending the potting soil or, or the soil that goes in the hole with a little bit of potting soil is actually going to do the, the tree any long-term good. And, um, it, it just adds more to the cost of planting trees when it's just simply unnecessary. Cool. So, but, but one, of the, one of the biggest problems that we see in landscape trees is that they're planted too deep as well. And so, which means we need to plant the, where the roots actually start needs to go at the top of the soil level. And uh, root systems on trees aren't typically as deep as people think they are. They tend to spread out in vast areas, but they don't tend to go very deep. And evidence of that is just look every time we have a big windstorm, which we had one recently, and you see a lot of trees that tip over and they take all the lawn with it. You know, they're 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 down maybe six inches or so, and and that's about the end of it. So they have to spread out and take up a lot of water and nutrients, and they have to compete with the grass and the other plants there. And so, so they typically don't root as deep as as people think they do. So that's why we do say a wide, shallow hole. Let, and put the soil back into the hole that, that came out of it, let those roots move out uh, and establish in, in, the, in the soil that they're going to have to spend the rest of their life in. At this point, the audio program I was using cut out for a moment, and Mike was talking about how to water trees. The take-home message was that he will take a hose over and just let the hose run slowly, and he makes sure that he waters the entire root ball of the tree and drives water to the bottom of it. He then will wait a day or two and then go dig next to it and check it because watering trees is so variable according to temperature and soil types. In a sandy soil, a tree may need to be watered three or four times a week, but in a clay soil, it may only need to be watered once or twice a week, just depending on the situation. One of the things that I, that I like the idea of a lot are these, what are, what are called like tree bags or water bags for trees. And these are, are basically bags that you fill with water and they fit around the base of a tree. Sometimes they go up the trunk a little ways. They can hold anywhere from, from a few gallons to, to 10 gallons or so. And then they, they leak water out of the bottom of the bag. So either through little drip emitters or just as the bag seeps the water out. And those can be refilled periodically and really help those trees get through that first year, which is, which is the most critical. And and Tom, you and I have been involved with, you know, with a long-term, you know, tree survive, survival study that's been done here that we did here in Utah. And 
pre-mortality uh, is really high in the first two years. So if we can if we can get plants adequately watered and established during that first two year period, they have a much greater chance of survival in the years to come. We periodically get questions from clientele wanting to know if they can stick a wide PVC pipe down next to the root ball of a newly planted tree and fill it with water to supplement irrigate the tree. Yeah, what, what you really get is, especially if you've got fairly dry soil, you'll have this wet pocket surrounded by dry soil, and that doesn't normally benefit the root system at large. So it, it might help one small area of the tree, but uh, really, be, as I mentioned earlier, the root systems on woody plants tend to spread out over a very large area. The root systems don't stay in that little pot that we, that we planted, in that little root ball. They're going to spread a great distance. Because I was recording over the internet, the audio cut out here also, and Mike's take-home point was that sticking a pipe in the ground and then filling it with water doesn't really benefit the tree that much because it makes a portion of the root ball mucky wet while another part might be really dry or it could drown the entire bottom of the tree. So the best way to irrigate is with a hose from the base of the trunk of the tree for the first year. And oftentimes lawn sprinklers are fine as long as you monitor to make sure the tree is not over or underwatered. I'd like to thank Mike for his time. They'll actually be back next week on another episode. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a production of Utah State University Extension.